This is episode number 52 of the Bearded Marketers Podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. Catch new episodes every Monday morning at thebeardedmarketers.com slash podcast. And of course, you can also catch us on iTunes. We got a great lineup of things to talk about. I think we have more topics than usual for tonight's lineup. For the same price. Free. For same, yeah, for the same price. Free. Also, no pitches, no sales pitches. You don't have to listen to that on this show. We're not getting sponsored by anybody, mostly because I don't think anyone wants to give us money to be on this show, but we will not be pitching any products that we don't use ourselves. I think that's a key difference between us and everyone else. So my man, Corey, what are you drinking tonight? Let's get into this. First of all, I would not recommend. It's disgusting, but we're trying something new. It's called an Americano. So equal parts Campari and vermouth with a little bit of blood orange bitters and club soda. Not good. Is that a sweet or dry vermouth? It's something that tastes disgusting in your mouth drink. <laughs> it's a dry well, vermouth. Though. Well, I'd like to give you congratulations. You managed <laughs> to make a drink with two of my least favorite liquors, and it's, I can't even imagine how bad that must taste. Uh, it must linger for a while there, it too. It tastes like drinking out of a shoe, to be honest. But how about you? <laughs> I don't want to recount the whole tale every time. I'm going with an old-fashioned Buffalo Trace bourbon. Um, Always a solid choice. My custom mix of bitters. A little dash here, dash there. I don't know. I lose track, uh, but it's delicious. Fog starts rolling out of the glass. Yeah. Concoctions. Exactly. All right. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started. But before we do, if you have a suggestion for a topic, maybe one that you wish every week, they need to cover this, but we haven't yet. Give us a call 904-270-9603 or drop us a line at thebeardedmarketers.com on our contact us form. And we'll be certain to work it in sometime in our content schedule. But for tonight, we're going to actually reverse it on you. And Google Corner is going to be first covering some changes there. We're going to be going over some tactics on how you need to deploy Twitter integrations on your site. How do you get that engagement up Mm -hmm. and get those Twitter followers just engaging like crazy? We're going to be moving on to privacy and disclosure. Are these things that we need to be considering as marketers? What are some of the implications? And then lastly, wrapping it up with marketing flywheel, dot, dot, dot. We'll get more into that at the end of the show, so you have to stay tuned. But a very interesting discussion, I'm sure, will be brewing out of that one. So first things first, Google Corner, our favorite search engine, some new happenings around there. First of all, we wanted to cover... An interesting question that arises time to time is when you're running an e-commerce site, what do you need to do with out-of-stock products? You know, when products go out of stock, do you need to remove them from your site? How do you need to treat that with the search engine so you don't get bad content all throughout your site that might reflect poorly on your quality scores? Our favorite guy Wrecker of Dreams, Matt Cutts was interviewed. If you're not familiar with him, he basically heads up the policy team within Google and heads up a lot of the spam issues, basically getting sites removed from Google and yeah. destroying people's great, dreams. Great YouTube channel. If you have some free time and want to learn about some of the more intricate details of SEO on Google, check him out on uh, YouTube. He's got a channel where he does videos that fields questions like this one, mm-hmm. uh, I think every few days or something like that. So really Which good they've stuff. recently stepped it up before. It was every couple months mm-hmm. you'd hear whispers down the hallway, but now they've gotten much more regular. So definitely worth a check out. Basically, long story made short, he said it depends. It depends on the size of your site and how many out-of-stock products that people are going to encounter is how you need to handle the situation. So if you're a small-time site... It's not going to happen very frequently, and it's not a huge mix of your pages, then it's okay just to leave the page as is and potentially just 
roll with an out-of-stock product until it comes back in, and that shouldn't cause you too much heartache. If you're more to the medium and large size of e-commerce, which he didn't really quantify who that is, so I guess you're going to have to take that for what it is, but you should actually 404 those pages in most cases to redirect people potentially to your homepage or start over their search to keep good continuity on your site, which is maybe not the most intuitive way to address your products out of stock, but it is something that they recommend doing to essentially keep your high quality scores. Now, one other option that they talked about, there is certain meta tags that they have been made available that Google respects and around expiring pages and or product unavailable after. And these particular tags will be respected by the search engines and will take up to a day after they've been read by a spider to be respected in the index. And he said basically the benefits there are, again, keeping the most relevant pages in your Google index. Also, you're not sending people to products that are going to be out of stock and one of the quality measures that they take into account when they come to a site. So if you're an e-commerce store, you have a lot of out-of-stock products out there or discontinued, you might be suffering from some ranking issues if you have a bunch of those sites lingering out. Yeah, this seems like one of those things that is just highly situational and will vary depending on exactly how your business runs. You know, there are a lot of companies out there who regularly run out of things. In those situations, I can't see it making sense to 404 those pages. Or, you know, you did mention like maybe discontinued products. In that case, I don't understand why you wouldn't sort of 404 those pages and like redirect people into maybe some other more relevant products. This is just one of those things where I wasn't aware of some of those meta tags, but I think that this is just some common sense needs to be applied. I mean, if you don't carry the product anymore, you shouldn't have that as a page on your website. Right. And maybe you do a little bit more of a intuitive for, in your case, if you're running out of a product, maybe you're not necessarily taking them back to the homepage, but back to a category mm-hmm. so they can select a relevant product for them. Or maybe you're not even really doing that. For example, there's some kinds of products where, okay, you're out, but I want to put my email address in because right. I want to get notified. Put my name on it. it. Mm-hmm. And I still want to read about it. So I don't want you to send me away from that specific product page. That's just a really weird situational one. I think those suggestions he's giving, though, apply to sort of mass market e-commerce stores that sell things that a lot of other people sell similar things for. So it makes sense in a lot of those scenarios. So moving right along, ooh, this is a good topic. So we were actually prompted by another article to discuss what happens when you get a notification from a search engine like Google that your site has come under review and is about to suffer a spam penalty? In the article that we read, it was kind of an interesting situation to where a site had received notification from Google that your backlink situation does not appear to be natural and to the effect that we think that you are trying to game the system. So you're going to potentially suffer some consequences. So they kind of ignored it for a while, which they readily admit. And then they started noticing that their organic rankings for a lot of their non-branded terms were really starting to suffer. So it was really this documented saga, and we'll tweet out the link so you can read it, over, I think it's almost two or three years of how they can get back into Google for these key terms and essentially rebuild their reputation within Google. First of all, for those that don't actively monitor the communications between Google, you should always be checking your Google Webmaster tools and seeing if there is any communication to you because a lot of this stuff can have some drastic impacts to your site. So if you get one of these spam notifications or a penalty message from Google, you do have the opportunity to also respond back to it and ask Google to reconsider your site. Essentially saying, 
yes, we saw your message. We're sorry. We changed some things around here. Will you have us back? And so that's what this company did over the course of a couple of years. They were chasing bad links, bad affiliates, things like that. The whole blog post documents all of the efforts that they had and gave some interesting tips on how to go about that. I will say that their final solution is a little bit sketch in my opinion. I don't know if that's actually something I would recommend, but it worked for them. Mm-hmm. But I know that you've had a lot of experience kind of in this oh, industry, lots think, of tears. Yeah, I think I could write uh, a, a several volume novel about all of the things I've gone through with reconsideration requests with Google. And even before they had that sort of formal process in mm-hmm. place, going back and forth with random people that we knew at Google and other random SEOs in the industry to, to try to get some of our websites back in the game. It's really one of those crazy things where specifically we still have one site, I think, who is still sort of penalized. And it's been probably two or three years now. Similar sort of thing. It's, you know, we get you have a bad backlink profile from Google. Mm-hmm. We try to clean things up. They say, no, nope, not good enough. We try to clean things up. Okay, you're fine. Three months later, burn. you get another email, you're burned again. And so you keep going back and forth with that. I think some sites, some industries are just uh, maybe destined for that, depending Mm -hmm. on how old your site is. If you're not really an old established website, you're kind of destined for that kind of fate, especially if you have bad backlink building practices. I think, though, the takeaway maybe from that specific article that you were pointing out, and like you said, we'll tweet it out so everyone can read it more in depth. Two things. One is that they had their own in-house people going out and building links in a bad way. The other one was that they had a bunch of affiliates doing it in a sketch way. And I think, you know, this is maybe a little side topic here. We can get outside the Google corner for a minute. If you're going to run affiliate programs, make sure you approve everybody. Don't just let everyone send you traffic in your affiliate programs. Number one, that there's really no point in that. Most affiliates who you get through most affiliate networks are terrible. They're not going right. to send you converting traffic anyway. They're going to send you a bunch of junk traffic. It's really going to screw up your Google Analytics accounts. And sure. uh, you know it's going to really mess with a lot of the metrics that you pay attention to. It makes it hard to manage because even if they are sending sales, you, now you got to back up and go, okay, are these leads good? Are mm-hmm. these sales fraudulent? Uh, where are they coming from? So I think if you're going to run an affiliate program, you do it in a hands-on approach and you approve people one by one. That way you don't run into issues like this company ran into, as well as a whole other host of issues. So that was my little side thing outside the Google. Oh, well, yeah, corner, and so. you brought up a good point. So to their credit, they did talk about they weren't managing them correctly. So when they went back and looked at some of these affiliates, they were ones that were taking over old domains just ripping off the history there, but having totally non-related links in there. They were stuffing. There was a lot of poor behavior by a lot of their affiliates that was causing them a lot of harm to the tune that they were actually considering burning the domain and just moving on. When you start to get some of these penalties, it's important to consult with someone that can help you look at the full picture and potentially look beyond just yourself. It might not be just your actions, but it might be someone else in the company. Look at where your links are coming from. If you have an affiliate program, like Rob said, quality is supreme there. So you might want to look there for issues as well. It might be worth it to actually consult with someone because you can spin your wheels for a long time and lose a lot of time, but there are some dedicated experts in the field that can help you. So moving on beyond just our favorite people at Google, now we're moving to the Twitter world. You had some good points about how do people need to consider we want to grow our social audiences. We want people to be engaged. We love checking our Twitter app, just seeing so many retweets and comments and mentions. It's great. So how do we get more of that? So how do we better integrate some of these social signals into our 
sites, but also get people interacting with them as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I found a post from Siege Media where they discussed some tactics regarding, number one, Twitter buttons on your website in and of itself, but also more specifically about the kind of copy that you use in your tweets and in the tweets that you pre-fill in those Twitter buttons themselves. They have a list of a few you know, top tactics. Here's some things you should do, but also they have some examples of some bad things that you probably should not do and avoid and things like that. So I wanted to cover a couple of the things you should avoid doing, and then I'll go down the checklist of, I think it's like five or six things. Like here's what you should definitely be doing in your tweets, both when you post them from your Twitter account, but also when you pre-fill them on your website. Okay, so here's a couple examples of obvious things you need to avoid doing if you're going to include Twitter buttons on your website, which by the way, if you're going to do, you might as well take the time to optimize I've always found it funny the companies who include the social media buttons but don't actually take the time to optimize maybe their location or the call to actions on them or really give anyone any reason to use them. You will have the random people who kind of click the follow button or tweet button or whatever, but take the time to to make them worthwhile and, and have some interaction around them. So I feel like a lot of people just see those as check mark items. Like, do we have Twitter buttons? Yes. Okay, move on. Yeah. And or a way to just fill up space. Ooh, let's oh, put yeah. some colorful things over here. You know, <laughs> like it'll, yeah, it'll fill it out. Uh, So one, obviously, if you're not pre-filling the tweets in your Twitter buttons or whatever it is, uh, where are you? What century are you in? Um, You need to be pre-filling them with relevant, for example, if you have tweet buttons in a post, have it pre-filled with something about the post and a link off to the post, not just opening a blank Twitter window. The other thing is, if you're going to do that, make sure you sort of optimize it at least in a couple different ways. So for example, you don't want to just have it pre-filled with your URL, right? Include the URL, obviously that's relevant, but maybe some other things like the title of the post itself, maybe a via tag and your Twitter handle for the blog itself. Some things like that can really help increase interactivity with some of those buttons. So those are a couple of things that... Allowances for retweets and the character limits and things like that. Yeah, exactly. So those are some of the things you should be doing if you're going to bother putting Twitter buttons on there. So here's a checklist, though, that you can use if you're going to have Twitter buttons and if you're going to write tweets and really care about some of this stuff. So number one, you need descriptive titles that not only describe necessarily what it is, but, you know, pique some people's interest, right? I mean, you don't want to have boring stuff. Things like writing headlines for landing pages apply here, including numbers, percentages, grabby headlines that stand out from all the other crap that's on Twitter can really help you there. Number two, it's actually clean and good looking. So this is something I see sometimes with tweets is they're full of a bunch of hashtags and upper and lowercase capitalization. I can't actually read it very well. So take the time to make sure it's actually legible when I'm scanning through my tweet list that it's actually something that's going to stick out to me. Number three on their list is include your Twitter account itself. So for us at The Beard of Marketers, an example would be if you're on the podcast page, oh, listen to the only internet marketing podcast that matters, a link to it, and then also like a via at the bearded MKTRS, which is our mm-hmm. handle on Twitter. A couple other ones from us that are actually outside of this article are, one is if you're going to have buttons on there, pay attention to the placement. I know we talked earlier about you know people just randomly putting them on there, but for example, if you have a blog post, don't include the tweet button at the top of the blog post. People are less likely to do that. They haven't read the article yet, <laughs> right? So right. include it at the bottom. People have already read the article. Now, oh, that was amazing. I'm going to click the tweet button. Similarly, though, 
oftentimes I see people do this in side blog posts themselves. They have a nice little quotable phrase mm-hmm. with a tweet button right next to it that I can click and tweet out that one little phrase that, that was that like... nugget. Ooh, that was good. Yeah, that was an amazing nugget of information. I want to tweet it out immediately. So that's another one. And the second one from us is using URL shorteners. Now, I don't want to advocate this necessarily because we've actually run tests on our The Bearded Marketers uh, Twitter account and tweets that use URL shorteners actually get less engagement than ones that use full URLs. I know that sort of goes against some of the marketing conceptions that people have. You know, we only have a hundred and whatever characters on Twitter, mm-hmm. so I need to shorten my URL so I can write more stuff, right? What we found, again, like I said, is we, we decrease engagement rates when you use those. I think it's simply because people's perception is that it's probably some sort of spam link. Right. Also, when you have the link URL there itself, I get a feel for what I'm actually, where I'm going, right? If you have a bit.ly, I have no idea where that link is possibly going. But if you include your full URL... And I recognize that brand, you know, .com or whatever. Yeah, I'm more likely to click on it and engage with that. So those are a couple other things to keep in mind. If you're going to be optimizing your Twitter campaigns. Which you should be. Because we've seen some awesome results with ours. Yeah, absolutely. And a little side note here as well. If you're going to, this is outside of copy inside Twitter tweets, include pictures. Oh, with yeah. your tweet. If you we have pictures, pictures that are relevant to any of your tweets, include those things. Engagement rates, the roo the roof <laughs> if you do that. So pay attention to that. All right. So moving right along, fireside chat topic, if you will. But we are prompted by 60 Minutes a little bit ago, delved into the world, website metrics, and the information websites collect on people that, you know, maybe some people aren't necessarily fully privy to or even know that websites track your actions when you're on them. We wanted to start a dialogue. What is our responsibility? Is there any takeaways? In the 60 minutes, they were interviewing that would consider people outside the industry. And some of them were shocked. They know where I click and they track every page I go to and things like that. And obviously, depending on what web technology it is, they might get a little bit more invasive than even that. But what is our responsibility now in 2014, especially in the last couple of years? Privacy has become more of a hotter topic, I guess, especially here in the United States. It has been in the EU for quite some time. But what is our responsibility? How are we to take that? Is there any implications or takeaways that we need to consider? Or is it more just a case by case? You know, I think that 60 Minutes episode, really the focus, at least the takeaway that I got, was simply that people don't realize what's possible with current technology. I think it was more people being surprised that it was possible, as well as being, you know, maybe a little uneasy about the concept. But for example, if you run an e-commerce or software as a service type company, and you aren't keeping track of a lot of very specific things on people, I feel like they expect some of those things. So for example, if they reach out to you as a customer support request, hey, I'm having trouble with whatever, well, I can pull up your account. And mm-hmm. I can see everything you've been doing. I, I can see, okay, yeah, you were making it this page and something was happening here. So right. I can help you now. I mean, this is not just trying to keep eyes on everything that you do, right? right? As some creepy marketing overlord. I'm trying to actually make the experience better. And I think that's what a lot of marketers use this. I think where it starts to get hazy for me personally is with a lot of the remarketing setups that are out there. I like remarketing. I'm a fan of it. But very surface level remarketing, some companies get very specific and start passing around personal identifying information and it gets a little hazy for me with some of that stuff. Yeah, there's actually some newer features coming out as well for a lot of platforms where there is a a shared 
history of people as mm-hmm. they come onto your site. So there's been this big push, particularly again in, in e-commerce, but Legion can use it as well, where there are now large groups of companies that are sharing information on visitors. So when you come on other sites, they actually know something about you, even though you've never visited. So I forget the vendor. I think it's blue something, but they essentially sell products where they have a collection of very large sites that have signed up and you can gain some personal attributes from this person and certain interests that they have, which I guess you can sort of get in a way with some of the demographic information that mm-hmm. Google allows you to target. But this gets a little bit more granular than that. And I think that once we start bridging into that realm, it starts getting a little more invasive. And I think that there might be a recoil with mm-hmm. some people when they start to learn not only how much we watch people, because I think there's some very valid reasons why we collect some of the information, like you discussed. Normal brick and mortar stores have surveillance and they watch people to make themselves better. I think really what it needs is two-sided conversation instead of people out there to shock, scare them and how much is getting collected. But I think it also is going to cause certain marketers to have conversations of, yes, we know certain technologies are out there that actually might make us a little bit more money. But from the standpoint of the privacy of users and what we want to be able to say we do as a corporate entity and the good that we do, we might decide to not go with something because we do feel like it violates people's privacy too much and might be interested to see if there, as more and more attention is paid to privacy, if there is a fallout here in the next year or two where some of that stuff gets ushered out or people start having a much more loud dialogue Mm -hmm. about that. You know, you mentioned Google's uh, demographic information that gets pulled and I think that stuff to me is okay because I can't drill down on individuals, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they won't even show it in your account unless no. you have a certain amount of traffic to your website. So they're confident that you aren't able to attribute that information to individuals specifically. So I think those kinds of integrations are okay. But when you start talking about a lot of the big data tie-ins, like maybe you were talking about where I can, you know, this company already has this email address for the specific IP and cookie that's been following around. And so they come to my site and now I have it too or I have some other information about them, or even things like, okay, you came to my website, I had your IP, I was able to back out your company name, you submitted your email address, now I have your company name and email, I go to a big data provider and I fill in the rest of the details. I've filled everything in. I know who you are, where you live, how much money you make, your position, and I can back out so many other things. I think that's the kind of stuff that's creepy and a little scary to most people, even though... It doesn't have much to do with the internet necessarily. I mean, all these things can be done in the real world, like you were saying. It's just I think people think that there may be in some sort of privacy world. Yeah, they expect a certain level of anonymity, whether it's it should be respected or not. So Mm -hmm. it will be interesting to see what the future holds. I know that with some of our e-commerce clients, we've been approached by some of these big data providers, and I know for a fact we could probably increase our bottom line a bit by using some of their services. Just because the number of samples and information they have would probably be of benefit to us. But after some internal conversations and just with what the corporate goals, missions, and statements are, we just chose not to go with them and forego that extra bottom line addition for the sole purpose of making sure that we're doing right to people. And I think that us as companies will have to have those conversations probably more and more in the upcoming year so. All right, so last topic we're going to talk about tonight is the marketing flywheel. 
And I think this will be an interesting discussion on how do we need to structure our site so we start getting traction on things and things mm-hmm. start perpetuating themselves and we get those things in motion. So, Professor Rob. So this is a concept I came across from Rand Fishkin over at Moz.com. I believe this is one of their Whiteboard Friday videos. So they discuss the concept of the marketing flywheel, which essentially means building your marketing in such a way that once it starts gaining steam, it sort of perpetuates itself. There's virality built into your marketing efforts and everything you're doing is building on itself and not these sort of one-off efforts. So for example, maybe a paid search campaign, it's only set up in a very specific performance-related way, is like a one-off effort, right? So as soon as I turn that campaign off, we're not making money anymore. We're not getting any traffic anymore. Nothing's happening anymore. So focusing your efforts, especially in the beginning when you're building a brand, if you're a smaller company, focusing your efforts on things that are probably not going to provide immediate ROI, but that help spin up that marketing flywheel and get visitors coming back. And your goal is to increase from one reader today to two tomorrow to three. And then before you know it, you're at a few thousand. And every time you post or do something, there's that virality and everything happens, you know, it just sort of spins out of control from there. So I know a lot of us marketers, as we we start up with new campaigns, we always get frustrated because nothing ever really works the way we expect it to, right? And so how do you measure that success and how do you, when do you know when to give up on a specific marketing campaign? If it's paid search, if it's Twitter, when do you realize, okay, this is not going to work for me or maybe it is working or maybe I need to test more. Maybe I'm measuring the, mar- the wrong performance metrics. Maybe I need to pay attention to how many people I am reaching And just because I only get a couple email signups, well, that's huge for us because that's going to turn into another few tomorrow and then even more than that the next day. And every time I put things out, my content naturally spreads around. I don't have to spend money to get that stuff out there. So this was another sort of marketing concept that we could just sort of discuss on the show. I think it's an interesting thing, especially because we just we're sort of in the middle of it right now, the beard of marketers ourselves. You know, we had to stick it out with a lot of our marketing campaigns and we're we're really getting traction now at this point. And where do you where do you draw the line and how do you continue to do that with your marketing campaigns? Like you said, I mean we're right in the middle of that. And I think for us a couple things kind of bared out is one determining where your time is and having a good budget allocation of what is a cost of your time and measuring that also with the level of quality that you can put out. So when we first started, we were juggling all of the social channels out there. You know, we were on Pinterest, we were on Facebook a lot, you know, we were on all these types of things. And we just finally got to the point where we found some good traction in certain, particularly Twitter, Facebook, that we found really good responses, but also we felt like it fit our own niches as well. We felt like we could respond well to people. We felt like our personal style reached out to those people the best. So I think you kind of have to find your own style, but also limit with how much time you have available to invest in some of these campaigns, but still execute well. Because I think that's an issue with a lot of people in this concept is they try to spread themselves too thin. Mm -hmm. And so the quality suffers and it's, To a point now where so many people are marketing online that you can't necessarily suffer in that quality measure and still make it out all right. It's not like we're still in this gold rush and there's so few people out here panning for gold that you just get lucky. The competition is real and fierce. And if you're not one to keep up your standards, then 
you could be calling it quits on a campaign that was a good idea. You just had really poor execution because mm-hmm. you didn't have the right time or maybe the right resources. To I think well. I think that's a really good point to take into consideration as well. And that is simply that there's so much competition out there in virtually every channel that you're going to step into. Your first campaign is not going to work. Mm-hmm. Your second one isn't going to either and neither is your third. It's going to take a few failures to get to a point where you've started to sort of figure it out. And I think a lot of companies, especially young sort of startups who are maybe selling things, they fall into the trap of, I'm just going to throw a couple hundred dollars at this one thing and we'll see if it works. And if it doesn't, you know, it's purely performance-based. We didn't get any sales from it. So let's close it down and let's move on. No, you like you missed the whole point. You you threw $200 at it. Well, that was just to get started. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you're going to have to... started. Right. You're going to have to spend a month and a few thousand to mm-hmm. see if this channel is going to work to really get to a point where you're getting some traction. And again, you know, getting visitors in and out of your website through that channel and spinning up that flywheel so that people keep coming back and spreading the word, especially with the social networks. So uh, just a definitely interesting concept to keep in mind when you're out there. You know, a couple that we sort of mentioned there, sort of like that tipping point. How do you get to that point? But also, how do you not give up so easily and so early on campaigns that you're testing in different channels? It's one, understanding the mediums that you're working in, but two, having properly allocated enough working capital. Like take whatever you think you need and maybe triple that. Mm -hmm. And that's like what you should be starting with. And I think you made a great point of because we have all these metrics and stats, we expect things to be very ROI driven and get immediate responses. But when you're working with things like AdWords or things like that, and you're starting a new idea, if you don't have any history built up with them, you might be throwing a thousand or two into an account just to really essentially establish that relationship with Google and don't really expect that much in return. You're just starting that conversation. Or like you said, you're starting that audience. So maybe we'll dive into this in another episode because they're kind of running short on time. But it is an interesting concept that we're going to flesh out a little bit more, maybe give you some more tangibles to share what our growing process has been like. Because there's probably a lot of people in that small startup-ish type of situation. How do we get that ball rolling to where we're not having to you know, work till midnight every night just to get maybe a couple of tweets here and there? So that's going to do it for us on this episode of The Bearded Marketers. First of all, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. If you enjoyed yourself, share with a friend. And also share a review with us on iTunes. It'd be greatly appreciated. If we didn't cover something that you're really interested in or have a topic for us to cover, give us a call 904-270-9603. Rob loves pouring over the voicemails, having a good laugh. But also you can drop us a line at thebeardmarketers.com and our contact us form, and we'll try to work it into an upcoming episode. Also, if you're an expert and you want to be on the show, not to pitch products, but to share some good marketing advice to our audience, drop us a line at the website as well. We have a couple interviews that we've done that we're going to be featuring on the show. But again, that's going to do it for us. Thank you again for your time, and we'll see you next week.